everything pre-2017, as Arthur explained, very, you know, a very organized market and suddenly you're exposed to a huge amount of volatility. So you might get companies within the UK and Europe that um, had a great deal of experience on managing those risks in other markets. I guess you can imagine that they were, were, were at the forefront of then changing the way they bought sugar in the UK and Europe and the processors had to adapt very quickly to meet those consumers uh, changing demands for the way they contract contract sugar and manage manage their risk. Yesterday, 21st of February, marks the beginning of Fairtrade Fortnite. And to celebrate that, we are talking to two organizations trying to help farmers embrace technology and data and all of the innovation that it could perhaps unlock for the sector. We're talking to Zonikow, first of all, and then IGS. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, brought to you by the Harvey Nash Group, where we talk to leaders from across the industry. Joining me today, both Akish and Amber. How did you enjoy your storm Friday, looking back to the beginning of the weekend? You're looking um, at me blankly. Uh, yeah. Amber, do you not remember the really bad winds on Friday? Yeah, do you know what? I actually thought yesterday was worse. Or where, where I am, at least. Yesterday was really windy, and then Friday wasn't actually that bad. No. Mm. I, yeah. I was driving to Manchester in that storm, which was... Um... Yeah, which was quite. Was fun. that was that necessary? Oh, did you go to the fight? I did go. Yeah, it was for the boxing, and it was necessary travel. So, uh, yeah, exactly. But it, it was all right. I mean, the, mo- the thing is, the motorways are fine. Like there was just a few patches. Where... Yeah, because every no one else was on them because everyone got told to stay home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was just it was just the punters going for the uh, for the boxing going up north. But um, yeah, it was all right until you got out of the services, and then literally, like you know, when you open your door to get out, and it just slams back in your face. You're like, whoa, okay, this is interesting. Wind is the only weather condition I hate driving in. I could do snow, I could do rain, I could do anything, but I hate the wind because it just feels like you're just going to go at any point. I think maybe because I've just got like a really like old kind of tinny would, car. Would, but would like... you drive a, ro- a, a go kart around? <laughs> High sided vehicle only. But I, I do. I feel like when I'm out, I feel like, oh my God, like one big gust of wind and I'm gone. If Amber unexpectedly leaves the uh, podcast in the coming weeks. <laughs> I got um, taken out by a big gust of wind. That's what she it is. Went, she went to Sainsbury's and just didn't come back. Yeah. <laughs> our, 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 our entire village was no power for five hours. Oh, really? really? Yeah, it was really nice, actually. Every, everyone immediately just poked their heads out their front door and we just went over to our neighbours and sat and had a cup of tea and a chat because there was, there was no phone signal. It must have knocked out the local base stations. There was no internet. There was no. There was nothing. But thankfully, all the houses are on our street have got gas hobs, so we were still able to boil some water. So we just went and sat in our neighbours and had a cup of tea, and everyone was just like, "What are you going to do?" It was oh, quite nice. Yeah, perfect. That's decent. That it's very. Awful. Yeah, I'm kind of wishing that my power would have gone out now. Just a nice little like break for the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah so it was about ten o'clock to about three o'clock. Nothing. Was it was it meant to be worse down south or up north? Down south, but it, it was no worse than it often no. is in the north. But yeah. because it was in the south, there was mass hysteria. Yeah, because there was no like, um, yeah, there was no like power outage and all that sort of stuff. It was just all 
Well, the, jo- the, the the joke is kind of you know red red warning for London and the southeast. You know, do not leave your house. Uh, northerners, just make make sure that you've got your big coat on. Type. Yeah, thing. pretty much. That, that's pretty much what it was, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was all right. It was good. Well, we did lose some of the OT though, didn't we? Well, well it is a tent. It's ba- it's basically a marquee, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Like, do you know what I was going to say? I'm not actually that surprised. Like it's doesn't look very sort of durable does it mm. obviously it's not oh, well yeah obviously exactly friday's kind of proved that it's definitely not Land, <laughs> landmark british um venue rips to shreds by the weather um but it's quite a nice segue into today's interview because it's it's beginning of fair trade fortnight or at least yesterday was the beginning of fair trade fortnight and we've got two interviews all about farming starting with zana cow and then moving on to igs and of course sustainability and impact on the environment because apparently these storms might have to do with climate change. Some people might say otherwise, but, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's quite timely. It's quite topical. We'll hand over to the interviews and we'll come back with some commentary in a moment. So joining me for this conversation, we've got Arthur Marshall and Andrew Charlton uh, representing two sides of a particular issue. Uh, to get into that and to, to kind of scope out what we're talking about. Arthur, do you want to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm Arthur Marshall. I'm here with NFU Sugar, so that's part of the National Farmers Union. We represent uh, the UK's two and a half thousand beet growers. Um, and specifically today, we'll be talking a bit about uh, a project that we've been working on with Zanico for, for a number of years now, um, all about how we you know, deliver empowerment and pricing opportunities for growers, uh, which, which I'm sure we'll get into. And if anyone's not familiar with Zanica, it'd be great to find out a little bit about, more about you and, and, and the business. Yeah, perfect. Um, thanks, David. So I'm Andrew Charlton. Um, I'm an associate director here at Zanico Group. To introduce Zanico, um, because it's, yeah, it's, it's let's say, not a, 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 that well-known company, if you like, um, within the UK, globally, maybe a little bit more so for its uh, work in the sugar space. So we're a 160-year-old business traditionally known for its work in 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 the sugar space for supply chain services and risk management um and you know really our 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 role today or nowadays is more um evolved into an ingredients and packaging business and sugar still makes up the largest part of that business my role specifically has been around developing risk management strategies for all sides in the European sugar space uh, since 2017, when there was a huge amount of deregulation in uh, the European market that really saw uh, Europe and the world market start to correlate and interact to a degree that they hadn't done before. And that opened up a number of conversations. And that's why we're here today with the NFU. Arthur, I'm probably going to show myself to be horribly ignorant here. When someone mentions sugar farmers to me, immediately I kind of think to my holidays in places like Mauritius and countries and tropical islands that make rum. I don't think of the UK. I I live in Kent. I'm surrounded by sheep and rapeseed fields. Um, (laughs) You mentioned how there's 2,000 beet growers in the UK. I mean, how how big a part of our our economy of the farming industry does this represent? Yeah, so uh, you're not alone. You're probably one of the uh, six out of ten people that that doesn't know, didn't know beforehand that um, the UK grew sugar. 
Um, no, we we grow just over half of our domestic needs of sugar, which comes out of, of, of sugar beet. Um, it's grown in the east of England, so 80% of that is in four counties, Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire. So it's a highly concentrated industry just on that east, east coast. I'm glad that you didn't say Kent, because then I would have appeared even more yeah, <laughs> ignorant of my surroundings. There are, there are no sugar beet farmers in Kent. There's a, Good, right. <laughs> cross the, across, across the river, and there are a few up in Essex, but um, yeah. no, um, no, none in Kent. Um, no, so it's, it's, it's a, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly small part of the total UK UK farming industry. But but for growers in 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 the east, uh, for arable rotations in those counties, it's it's quite an important crop. Um, and as Andrew says, it's it's gone through quite a lot of deregulation in the past few years, or say past few years, about five years ago. So that that really led to a whole opening up of the sector and and yeah, you know, forced us I think into sort of rethinking new ways of doing things and having to having to innovate um, in order to to work out how we can be as as successful as we can into the future. Deregulation in in industries often you you kind of think of, you know, that there being opportunity or market growing kind of, Mm -hmm. I suppose, deregulation, people immediately kind of think of deregulation of banks and how it gave the banks, I suppose, more power to kind of operate in a way that they they saw fit. And I suppose there's that balancing act between how much oversight versus deregulation. You mentioned that, that we we grow about 50% of our domestic usage of sugar was deregulation seen initially as a as a positive by farmers or was this something that was kind of thrust upon them that they weren't necessarily happy about yeah i should probably tell you a bit of a story really which will, which really gives the background to why we then started the project we did so uh, if you go back before that, uh, the, the sugar sector was probably one of the most highly regulated of the agricultural commodities. Uh, certainly was was the last one to really, where the EU really sort of reformed its policies uh, later than all other crops. So for, for a long time, there was uh, minimum prices for sugar, minimum prices for sugar beet. So that was all set ultimately by the EU Commission and implemented in the UK uh, through, our, through our EU membership at the time. And also there were strict quotas on production. So effectively, as a, as a, as a sugar industry, prior to that, you had uh, regulation telling you what price you can sell at. Uh, if you're the sugar processor, you had regulation telling you what price you could buy your raw material at and telling you what price you had to sell it at. Uh, so that, on the one hand, effectively guarantee you know, locked in margins within the chain at, at the level that they're at. But also, in order to manage that system, the strict quotas on production meant that you couldn't uh, grow or produce anything additional um, in years when growers did overproduce. Uh, if, if, if the processor then ended up uh, with more sugar beet at the time, they'd, they'd just have to store that through to the next year before they could uh, legally sell it onto the market. And what all of that meant was you had uh, an industry that's very much organised around that uh, around what the regulation said you could and couldn't do um, so that it, you, know, you, you weren't ultimately exposed to a, to a highly you know, a, a volatile market in the same way that, that you would be normally. Post-2017, that was removed. So there, on the one hand, there's opportunities there for the industry to grow. There's no longer any legal limit on the amount that could be sold and produced. On the flip side, what that does is it exposes you to the full force of, of market conditions. And, and as with all commodity markets, sugar is 
sugar is a, a basic commodity and and just like all others it's it's highly volatile i'm sure andrew can can fill in but i think it's you know it, it must be one of the most volatile commodity markets i would have thought um if you look at the difference between the sort of peak and the trough in any kind of price cycle on the world market it can be about yeah, the, the peak can be about three times the size of the trough over over the course of a few years. So, you know, there's enormous price volatility there, and that's coming yeah. out of a world where, because of because of the rules that existed, we uh, in the past the industry was just told, well, here's the price you buy at, here's the price you sell at, and 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 there's very little flexibility around that. So, so as with all these things, it's both an opportunity and a risk. We have to. Uh, I think we identified early on within within NFU Sugar, within the growers, that we needed to find a way to to make the most of those opportunities and mitigate those risks. So yeah, Andrew, you mentioned that you work in in risk management and listening to Arthur there, kind of highly volatile. That that speaks volumes that you're going to be busy then, um, and little flexibility from the farmer's perspective. I suppose then you've got maybe a. Not a reticence, but a lack of culture of innovating at, at, at any rate, because they'd never had to. What 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 were the main challenges, and where did where did um, Zonica step in to try and help? Uh, good, good 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 question. And, and sort of you've hit the nail on the head. Is is everything pre two thousand seventeen? As Arthur explained, very you know a very organised market, and suddenly you're exposed to a huge amount of volatility. So you might get companies within. Uh, 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 the UK and Europe that um, had a great deal of experience on managing those risks in other markets. I guess you can imagine that they were were, were at the forefront of then changing the way they bought uh, 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 sugar in, um, in the UK and Europe. And the processors in the UK and Europe had to adapt very quickly to meet those consumers uh, changing demands for the way they contract contract sugar and manage manage their risk, um, you know, probably probably left behind in those early discussions and left quite exposed were the growers themselves. Okay, the most you know the most important people of all in um, you know in the marketplace. You know, without the beat, the processes don't function, and without the processes functioning, then um, then all those consumers who've got these ways of uh managing risk don't 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 uh don't secure their feedstock either so um that's really i guess where arthur and the nfu stood with regards okay well how do we actually change the way potentially that we contract beat in the uk as well um and i mean you know maybe arthur can elaborate some more but but you know when they came to us with this um idea or proposal or sort of not utopia but you know ideas of what it could look like we um you know we wanted to make sure we could develop something appropriate and we believe um we believe that together we've done that i'll step in here if you want because i can tell tell the story of where we got to so from coming from that starting point we um uh yeah we as i said we we then sort of entered this world where we knew we're going to be exposed to this level of volatility and we knew very quickly the sector and for, you know, for the sake of growers, that they would have to, we would have to adapt how we're doing things uh, and how how beet can be priced. So, given given the historical um, historical organisation of the sector, that we were coming from a place where there was one single beet price which was agreed every year, 
and effectively Grove and told, well, this year, this is the amount of money you'll be paid for your sugar beet. And that's it. It's one number. Um, it's not it's not variable. There's no there's no control in a grower's hands. The only control you have is do I or don't I uh, contracts to grow at that level. Clearly, it's always in your hands to say, actually, you know what, I'll grow a different crop. But there's no flexibility around that. You compare that to all other crops and you're you're clearly getting the market signals there. If you, if you want to grow wheat, you you can look at the wheat market on any given day and decide whether whether to, to sell wheat at that level and, and it will always change. But but sugar beet was always coming from this place where it was one number and that's all it was. And then the next year it was a different number. So what we wanted to do is in in short is, is deliver empowerment for growers. We wanted to empower growers to make their own decisions and empower them to, to take their own opportunities and not be not be subject to, to other people, uh, other people's decisions effectively. And similarly, we wanted to be able to empower the processor then to manage their own risk separately. Um, and so I, I could, could go on for about an hour, a whole hour talking through the, the, the detail of it, but by using the futures markets that exist on, on, on the sugar market, we wanted to be able to transpose those across to the beet price to allow growers and, and the processor, British Sugar, to then independently manage their exposure to that market. Uh, and effectively allow, allow growers the empowerment to make their own pricing decisions about when and how they sell that um, and be exposed to that volatility. And then secondly, uh, allows the processor to manage that risk in tandem with the risk they face in their sugar sales so that they're no longer exposed. Instead of being exposed to, to almost double volatility on the sugar and the beet price, the two can counteract each other so that they're, they are much more secure in the middle of knowing, well, actually, whether the market's high or market's low, we'll make a margin out the middle of it and then allow growers independently and separately to, to price and sell as and when that, that works for them. Um, and this is this is something we we first sort of conceived of in 2018. We sort of like put together a concept paper, sort of explaining how how we wanted to do, it. and that's what Andrew refers to. We worked worked with a number of people, explored a number of avenues before we kind of finally found the one that that would work. What what Zanaco were able to offer us with a solution to to the, the the technical detail of exactly how we would do that. There's a lot of legal legwork to work through that 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 they offered us and that's that was what was exciting i suppose my question would be that farming or the sorry the culture of beet farming sounds like it hadn't really had to change as we've alluded to for for a long time certainly due to the kind of the, the cap and i'd imagine kind of very traditional farming techniques but maybe correct me there but then you've got zanica which has been around for 160 years all of a sudden you have this situation where the market becomes deregulated and you're having to crunch a huge amount of more information um, and perhaps farmers who aren't used to be able to give the level of detail and the amount of information that that an organisation like Zana might need to help make the processes work. How has that been done? How, how challenging has that been, I suppose, from a technology point of view, from a data point of view, to pull off and make sure that it works to ultimately empower farmers like Arthur's describing? So, so, sort of, sort of, answer. You know, answering that, I'll go sort of back, sort of two steps. In 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 2018, Zanico um, launched a, a, an analysis platform called Zap. Okay, so originally conceived as a platform where any of our global customers 
and people that we weren't doing business with could get um, a level of access to our global analysis on sugar ingredients and packaging. Okay, so that's been around for, for, for four or five years or so. Um, it's been very well received. And, 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 and when Arthur came to us with this problem uh, or this idea, it struck us immediately that Zap was the platform uh, with which we could deliver this, this, this grower empowerment that, that, that Arthur's talking about. So any grower that has now uh, adopted this way of contracting sugar, to your point, David, now also has access to information analysis on the world market that to a certain degree will help them uh, uh, with their pricing decisions in terms of um, when is an opportune moment to sell uh, a beet now on the underlying commodity, the world market price. Um, so that 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 became, if you like, the 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 crux of our offering to the NFU and to their 2000 or so growers was we've got a ready-made platform that has um, you know, all the analysis that your growers will need. And we will develop a tool that essentially allows them to see how their beet price uh, per metric ton X farm develops um, to lock in price as and when they see fit based on you know, how does it compare to the fixed price offering they get from the processor or how does it compare with their market view? Um, uh, 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 and that's the tool that they now have at the, their disposal and have had at their disposal for now 18 months. And, you know, we believe it will continue to, 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 to grow as their appetite and learning to, to contract on this, uh, this way evolves. One last question. This technology offering would then appear to open up a number of opportunities. You know, if we're talking about technology offering a fairer deal for farmers. Arthur, I, I suppose up until a point, beet farmers would have had to have acted independently. Does this op open up an opportunity for independent farmers then to kind of work together and take take advantage of the market where, where they can? Because there is that much more data and, and more insight about what each other are doing. Ultimately, if each each farmer is their own business and they're going to want to make their own business decisions. But but certainly with with the transparency Zap offers, what it allows them to do is if they choose to, they can talk, discuss. Everybody's going to make their own decisions. The, the point here is is to empower growers to make that that decision themselves and not have to have someone else from on high dictate to them. Here's the decision you're going to make. Um, but no, certainly, I think the what what the way the platform is set up certainly allows them to to have those discussions and and yeah come together and and come to a view. Whether or not they would all come to the same view, obviously, is is up to them. I think we've seen even in you know in, in 20, 20, late twenty twenty, it launched as a pilot. Just a small number of growers were involved that first year. We're now in the second year of it now. I think even then, if you look at the the spread of what people ended up doing, there was a whole range of of different strategies people adopted uh, and different means and I think that comes to the heart of it that sometimes when people are talking about talking about farmers they, they like to regard them as a sort of monolith where everybody's the same but in reality it's this plethora of, of you know very small businesses if you look at the um, if you look at look at them in terms of um, you know all the businesses in the UK most almost all farms would count as micro businesses you know fewer than 10 employees etc um and there's an enormous diversity there in terms of in terms of methods of methods of production in terms of 
what sort of thing suits them as a as a farm, their appetite for risk, their yeah, their costs and everything else. And so everybody's going to be approaching this with a different view on the market. Some are looking to say actually there will be a certain price target where they'll be looking to achieve. Others will be will be able to take more risks. Uh, yeah, there's there's a whole range there. And I think what what this does and the way it's all set up is meant to allow growers to be able to 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 do what suits them and not what suits someone else. But certainly, you no, know, I think your, your point on collaboration, certainly, I think having that ability just to talk about it and to, to discuss, I'm sure does help people come come to a view. Well, look, it's been fascinating. It is interesting to see just what a rapid uh, period of change this has been in the industry. So I I, I really appreciate you both kind of, um, I suppose, describing what, what, what those changes have been and why. And uh, I hope that, that Zap continues to offer an opportunity for farmers to, to get the best out of their, their endeavours and efforts. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Which of us knows anything about farming other than what we've just listened to? Uh, no. I, I mean, I mean, I've been watching Clarkson's farm. So, right. you know, I, I know a little bit. I haven't bit. seen any of Clarkson's farms. Before. Mate, it is so good. I'm generally, I'm hooked. I'm generally hooked onto it. And and I've, I know it's been out for like a couple of years or a year or whatever. But I was just sat there one day on Amazon Prime and I finished watching something and it like just popped up and I was like, oh, I wonder what the hype is about. Three hours later, you're like, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I'm still watching it. So what's the concept? Jeremy Clarkson just bought a farm in Oxfordshire, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I think he, so he bought it in 08, which I imagine he bought land in 08, meaning he bought it in the financial crash, which probably bought it for peanuts. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's quite an expansive part of um, land. And, and anyway, so he, he's yeah, it's paid. The, it's the Cotswolds. It's the Cotswolds. It? So yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But, and he's got, I don't know, like how many hundreds of acres or whatever. And um, he's been paying this chap to look after it for the whole time whilst he's been living in London. And then the, the guy's retired. So he's gone, well, do you know what? I'm sod it. I'm just going to go and run it myself. And obviously he's from the southwest of London, you know, um, and a good whack and all that sort of thing. And now him and his like girlfriend are, are, are sat on a farm and they're trying to run the farm. And yeah, like it's basically just his little documentary on his experience, which is very good, to be honest. I mean, Amber, tell, tell me if this is right or wrong, but I've heard that actually as much as Jeremy Clarkson can be uh, a caricature, that he does actually try and run the farm properly. It's not just like a joke. It is genuinely him trying to run it properly, right? Yeah, do you know what? I haven't watched that much of it. I've literally watched like half of the first episode. And same as Akish, I only started it the other oh, day. Oh, good. I'm glad I asked you this. There yeah, you do you know what? It's probably the wrong person out of the three of us to, um, to have gone with. But um, yeah, no, I think he's actually done a really good job though. Because I've read quite a bit in the paper and stuff about like how he's got on. And I know, hasn't he got a farm shop called like Diddy Squat or something? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what his farm's called. Yeah, his farm's oh, called right, okay. Squat Farm, which which is quite funny as well, to be honest. But um, bring it, bringing it back to today's interviews, how sustainable is his farm? Because look, obviously we've got Zarnikov that are using data to give farmers choice effectively and to understand you know the whole thing around sugar beet farmers was there was this quota now the quota has been lifted um it gives them a lot more freedom there's the opportunity to innovate does any of that you know because because what we're talking about here on the podcast is going to be quite niche but jeremy clarkson i suppose has the opportunity whether you like him or not to take a lot of these issues to a much wider audience some of the stuff that we're hearing in this interview is that reflected in the program 
Um, I mean, there, there's a little bit around like automation of like processes. There's a little bit around like data and kind of metrics and stuff. Like specifically when he's like, you know, trying to work out um, like lambs and you know, kind of like rearing season and harvest and kind of what needs to go where and these sorts of things. And to be very honest, I thought farming was just like you go out on a tractor, you chuck a load of seeds and stuff out, and suddenly things just happen the elements take over and then you ju- and then you just cut it like once a year generally that was me being ignorant but honestly it is hard work like it seems like an absolute like you know job and a half that um i wouldn't be able to do it um and fair play to, to farmers i've got newfound respect for them to be honest I, I i genuinely thought it was just like to just go around riding on tractors and you know wear loads of barber clobber <laughs> Generally, <laughs> lots of farmer clobber. Yeah. I mean, no, this whole episode as well kind of focuses on the fact that farmers are evolving, so they're not quite the image that 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 the quiche has them uh, with them on their on their tractors in their clobber. Um, it's funny, like I kind of look at it and go, well, the far- farming seems to be through these two interviews waking up to the fact that they kind of like you know they're they're alive to the idea of feed the world, save the planet, reducing waste. But until consumer trends catch up, farmers are supplying to a local market. Farmers are supplying to consumer demand. And we still want strawberries all year round, avocados all year round, cheap food. We don't want to pay over the odds for it. And I suppose whilst that is there, you know, the the, the tech that Zanakow and um, IGS bring to the table will probably have limited impacts. Like it needs to be hand in hand. Farmers are evolving beyond Akisha's um, rather traditional view of them, but consumers need to evolve too, right? Yeah, because you see, yeah, I, I think, I think I, they I are think in a do. sense though, because um, you see like a lot of places now, I know there's like Morrison's do like wonky veg and stuff like that. Have you seen that? No. Have you seen, no. So like, okay, so like, you know how like you have a, <laughs> this sounds really stupid, but if you have like peppers and they look a certain way, and then obviously you just kind of buy them if they're all sort of like, you know, round and shiny and stuff like that. But I know a lot of like consumers now are doing like if a, what a vegetable is a bit wonky or like comes in a different shape or doesn't look like you'd expect, like they're still selling it. So I think they are adapting in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I always get a bit suspicious of food that looks almost too good to be true because then you go, well, it's it's not probably not very natural, right? Mm. Mm. I'd probably rather have a... a a pepper that's a bit misshapen because at least you know it's like a proper pepper <laughs> i don't know yeah. that sounds really really stupid yeah no i well, thought I think, that when i said my comment as well i think i think <laughs> i think in terms of like the the industry kind of adapting and stuff i think farmers are definitely using a lot more data and like going back to zarnikov and, and zarnikow i don't know if i'm saying zarnikow yeah, Zanakal. I think going back to them, right? But in terms of using like data, using like modeling techniques and stuff, and they're able to then realize and understand kind of like this is what we need, this is where the kind of sustainability is coming from, these are the metrics we need to hit. I think I think that's doing wonders to be fair, because it, it yeah, it, it makes it a lot more twenty first century as compared to my views, which were yeah, like it's a little bit old school sort of thing. And I bet, like, you know, coming back to the Clarkson thing, I know we brought it in as a, as a bit of a joke, but he will be in a situation where he's doing this experiment that probably feels totally alien and, kind of like, what the hell am I doing? It's not something that I know anything about. But you put things like Zarnacow, or you put companies like Zarnacow in place with their data, you put I, IGS there with their growth towers, which we're about to 
listen to in a moment. And farmers aren't so isolated. They're not so on their own. There is data, there is a network, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in a technology sense that they can tap into and make better decisions and innovative decisions because they've actually got access to, to knowledge that they wouldn't have had beforehand. And they're not just on deadly squat wondering, well, what do I do? Yeah. And, and also, I think that's the biggest thing, right? We, we talk about data-driven solutions and data-driven decisions and all that sort of stuff. You know, these these things are done from, you know, kind of towers or office blocks in, in major, you know, kind of cities. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, this sort of database decision making can still happen if you are, you know, in the West Country, for example, of, of the UK and you're on, you know, kind of large farmland area just because they're not in a bricks and mortar type of office and sat there wearing chinos and a shirt with a fancy laptop in, in front of them doesn't mean that they can't access that data, can't access platform and kind of, you know, get those kind of decisions, right? Um, yeah. So, and I think it's good. I think it's good. It's also, this is like a sense of community, that sort of thing. Um, and and it just helps like the local, I guess the first people that are, you know, kind of local, um, you know, dwellers in that area, they, they'll be able to, reap full rewards and then as will everyone else down the food chain kind of you know yeah. when it comes out and becomes mainstream well look, thank you both i think what we've proven here is that we don't know as much about farming as other subjects but it is super interesting it is fair trade fortnight so uh fun to focus in on this and thank you both for taking the time to join the podcast this week thank you thanks dave so i'm joined by andrew from igs andrew you're based up in scotland Where, whereabouts exactly in scotland i'm in edinburgh today and you do you live in Edinburgh or, or you're just there for business or our headquarters is in Edinburgh uh, my family home is in rural Perthshire surrounded by uh, various farming lands which is a nice kind of segue into what the business and uh, does and what you do so you are chief operating officer for IGS uh, do you want to very quickly explain what what or who IGS are and what they do yep IGS is a nine-year-old business we make a growing machine we call it a growth tower uh, other people would call it a vertical farm. Uh, think of a vertical farm as a field cut into snooker table-sized trays, stacked up to 12 metres high, plugged into green electricity, and then we enable our customers, the farmer, to grow a wide range of crops from leafy greens, rooting crops, fruiting crops, even seeding crops, down to things like baby trees. That would appear to be very kind of on trend it's interesting you kind of talk talk like that and i, I start kind of jumping to um uh, kind of stories that i've read about innovative farming solutions in places like the netherlands where there's not a huge amount of space and kind of people thinking about stacking farms kind of vertical farms in a very kind of literal sense why is that something that agriculture and farmers are looking at. I mean, there you talked about the ability to grow different types of crops, but what are the challenges that farmers are, are actually facing that this tech is trying to solve? So the challenges are different in different parts of the world. Some, some are looking to grow things year round when they've only got a summer season locally to them. So for example, here in Scotland, uh, you know, fantastic summer season, great for fruiting crops um, and a few crops from the field, but it's freezing cold outside today and nothing's growing. Um, similarly, if we transport ourselves to the Middle East, um, this time of year, ironically, they are able to grow outdoors, uh, but most of the year it's too hot, too dry, there isn't enough fertile soil and there are very few farmers. So completely different challenges in different parts of the world, but all of it um, 
very much focused on how do I feed the community, the consumer, uh, by growing crops more locally uh, with an eye to sustainability. How do I collapse the food miles associated with the food that is delivered into my customers' customers, so typically wholesalers and retailers and hospitality, so that they're making better use of the finite resources of the earth, so the fresh water, the fertile soil, to grow things that are fresher, have a longer shelf life, contain more nutrients, um, and are better suited to the local palate than something that's been grown many thousands of miles away in in some cases and transported using diesel-guzzling trucks from uh, the other side of a continent or flown as my breweries were for my breakfast this morning from South America. And and the growth towers, how... How did the organization, how did IGS kind of come up with with the design and, and making sure that these work? Because I suppose it, it's, it sounds like a fairly simple solution, but I dare say that it's, it's probably not that simple in reality. Not simple at all. The growth towers are a fusion of uh, around eight different science and engineering disciplines. Uh, took seven years and 17 patents to come up with what we've got. I mean, the big challenges are... If you are going to have half a million plants in a nine meter tower and you're going to replicate a microclimate in there that is essentially the perfect summer's day for each one of those different plants, then you've got to solve many different problems. Uh, The sunshine is replicated through the use of around about 100,000 LEDs and you've got to be able to light those up without blowing them up or indeed blowing up the grid that powers them. You've got to be able to put a necessary level of automation in there so that you, by and large, remove the humans from the growing environment because the humans both cost money, but more importantly, bring disease and bacteria into the growing environment. And if you bring disease in, then you've got to start spraying the plants with nasty things like pesticides or uh, other types of side. And if you do that to the plants, then you've got to wash them when they come back out. And if you wash them when they come back out, typically you halve the shelf life. And if you are going to have that type of plant density on a 42 square meter footprint on the earth, then you've got to be able to deal with what the plants breathe out, uh, which includes water in the form of humidity. And if you keep the humidity close to the plants, then they basically will drown each other, or at least they will encourage things like the development of mildew, which uh, obviously isn't conducive to indoor growing or indeed growing anywhere. So the big three problems are lighting, automation and humidity as soon as you start kind of saying things like automation it it sounds quite um advanced i my, my dad is a vicar in rural northumberland and at christmas i went home and one of his parishioners is the mother of two sheep farmers who lived down the bottom of a valley and we kind of trudged across the fields and down to the farmhouse and, and it felt like it was stepping back 30 or 40 years in time how do how do you reach farmers perhaps like that? Obviously, maybe not sheep farmers listening to what you're saying, or they may, maybe you're telling me that actually that, that is something that you can you can help with and try and convert some of their practices and, and convert some of their, their pastures to, to different uses. But how do you reach some of them? How is this technology helping farmers evolve um, what they're able to do with the land that they've got? And, and, and I guess the other question is, is how cost-effective is it for them? So all of our customers are farmers. Again, depending what they're growing, where they're growing it, what time of year they're growing it and who they're selling it to, uh, that will affect the economics of this. 
But our farmers typically will see a return on the capital investment uh, within three to five years, which in comparison to that same sheep farmer buying a, a shiny new tractor uh, is probably a very good investment proposition. Because all of our farmers are customers, you know, this is here to augment what they do. So it gives them an opportunity to diversify. So whether it is that sheep or dairy farmer that uh, is perhaps uh, singularly focused on, on that today, increasingly people like dairy farmers are collecting the slurry from uh, their cows. They're putting it into an anaerobic digester. They're generating electricity. And this gives them an on-farm use of the electricity to enable them to go and grow crops that they've never grown on the farm before and to give them a year-round income from those crops um, and to be able to deliver those crops within a magical 20-minute radius uh, of where the farm is. Increasingly, there is a drive to deliver this uh, produce locally, as I've touched on already, rather than dragging it from hundreds or even mm. thousands of miles away across a country or across a continent. Um, farming is... Uh, heavily reliant today upon very strict supply chains. You know, we've seen it during the pandemic. We see it in the UK, courtesy of Brexit, that things are not running as smoothly as they once did. Um, as I mentioned, I live in rural Scotland. Um, and the dirty little secret is that Scottish strawberries, by and large, don't start life in Scotland. They very typically start life as strawberry starter plants in Holland, in a greenhouse, or in Spain, uh, perhaps in some other growing facility and are then trucked in to be planted out in the polytunnels or in the glass houses in Scotland. And you know, that involves a lot of waste. It involves a lot of emissions associated with getting the plants here. So being able to give farmers or indeed farming communities the ability to grow their own starter plants locally on demand um, is an increasing part of what we do both in the UK and elsewhere. And whether they plant those out into the bare earth or put, they put them into polytunnels or glass houses is very much um, one of the major use cases of our growth towers. And the benefit to the farmer is that they're in control of supply. They don't have to overbuy. Um, the plants don't arrive damaged. Um, they arrive um, without having been sprayed with any nasty sides. Um, and they tend to do better in the field. And they often are able to grow them very much faster than traditional supplies. Another example would be broccoli starter plants. In Scotland, we grow a lot of broccoli and the broccoli farmers need millions of starter plants every spring. Uh, again, those aren't grown in Scotland. Typically, they'll be grown further south, perhaps in the east of England, where they're trucked up. And again, when you truck them, there's diesel emissions. Uh, when you truck them, there tends to be some damage along the way. And if you can deliver to the farmer a more vigorous, healthier starter plant that does better in the field and comes to harvest early, then he or she will get the benefit of the premium price for that crop. Hmm. You've mentioned sustainability on a number of occasions. Uh, you also mentioned before we hit record that you were at COP26 um, and you talked about waste for food and the ability to optimise kind of or minimise waste. How do you do that? Because it would sound like the growth towers offer the opportunity actually for there to be an explosion of strawberries perhaps and on that very kind of basic level and you can tell my ignorance here but if you've got a surplus then of really good strawberries on the market all at different price points are we not going to create extra waste so i think you've actually 
hit the nail completely on the head. The real key here is uh, at the data science end of the spectrum, how do you allow the farmer to grow exactly what they have the demand for and harvest that on every day that they want to harvest? And if everybody was all growing the same crop, strawberries or otherwise, then there would be a glut in the market, um, just like there is a glut in the market when it's fantastic summer's weather and in a boom year, everybody overproduces. The problem in a boom year is that the price goes down because there isn't enough demand. Equally, in a poor weather year, uh, when um, the farmers locally are unable to grow enough in order to meet demand, uh, that demand will be satisfied from supply from elsewhere, which means next year, when, let's say, the supermarket comes to buy, um, well, they might go to that alternative supply that they found last year. So for millennia, the farmers have been striving to increase productivity, but the one thing they've never had control over is the weather, including how many hours of sunshine they're going to get on any one day. By using what we call total controlled environment agriculture, we suddenly give the farmer perfect control over the weather, perfect control over the hours of sunshine, which means that he or she can actually vary the length of time that it takes to grow a particular crop which means they can optimize the amount of crop that they produce in order to just meet demand and therefore gain a premium price for that. Um, the other advantage of um, harvesting just the right amount every day is that you're not forcing it into cold storage where it costs money um, to maintain the cold storage. And even when you are storing it, you are actually eating up shelf life. So from the consumer's perspective, what do they want? They want fresh tasting, great tasting produce that lasts as long as possible, either in the fruit bowl uh, or in the refrigerator. Um, and if it is fresh, then it is actually more nutrient dense. Um, one of the disappointing things is once you harvest something, uh, the nutrient content within it starts to ebb away relatively quickly. So the fresher you can eat something, uh, the more nutrient-rich it is, which means if we're putting that in our bellies, whether we're kids at primary school or whether we're the elderly in care homes, you know, there is a well-being impact to this too, which is significantly enhanced by just eating fresh. Well, look, I think uh, given it is the beginning of Fair Trade Fortnight when we are recording, anything that seems to be a maybe not necessarily tied to that but a fairer deal for the planet and farmers is is, is great to hear so thank you for sharing um some of the, the the story and what you've been up to uh with with igs um if anyone is listening and they maybe they are related to a farmer and they think this could this could be a good solution how would they find out more about the growth towers best way to go is to go directly to our website so igs.farm in your favorite browser and that will take you right to the website Perfect. Andrew, thank you very, very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.